Welcome to Direction Correct, a Peplanix podcast with Colin Scott. Today's guest, Dr. Tillman Cheeks. Well, now, now you got it. Yeah, there you go. You did that on purpose. I did. So what the hell What the hell is a flow V, It's a vacuum. You hook it up to your vacuum and it vacuums yeah. your hair. George Clooney came out and said he did it. And I thought, okay, it's cool now, but apparently not. It has like scissors on the inside. Somehow the vacuum. Yeah. Right. Right. Well, I don't know, suck it in there and so, so chop I've it off. Three haircuts for the last 25 years, but I didn't let anybody know about it until Clooney did it. And I was like, okay, now it's cool. But apparently not. <laughs> you guys uh, gearing up for fall conference? Yeah, I'm going to blast off uh, right after we get out of here, out of this conversation, and go uh, meet all the students at the lake. The kind oh. of a, we call it a conference. You know, we have an agenda because we have to turn in the agenda, uh, but <laughs> it, it, the agenda ends up just getting left in the dust a lot of times. Well, so one, what, one, what, what is the fall conference, Tillman, just for our guests? It, it's just, it's a retreat, mm-hmm. you know, and we, we, try to, we try to entice speakers because I think we tried to entice both of you to come uh, and speak the students, but they get a real big kick out of, it, you know, it helps them meet each other and get to know each other, um, which we can talk about that some. Is it, yeah. I think that's, a, that's a topic. Are um, any of the alumni coming this year? Uh, Zolly. Um, who else? Matt. Well, you, you don't have to name their names. I was just curious if anybody yeah. decides to show up. Yeah. No. Yeah. yeah, three. Call cool. conference is a good time, uh, Derek, especially Derek, out at Lake Toledo, is that right? Toledo Bend. Toledo Bend. Yeah, I understand have... it used to be in uh, New Orleans when Cole was around, right? Yeah. We did once. And then we found out that was a bad idea because Cole wanted to party the whole time. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was uh, we, we went once and we were not allowed to go back after that. <laughs> that is correct. Three trips to the uh, New Orleans Police Department later. <laughs> well, no, not this time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's the other time we don't talk about. <laughs> right, right. We've only had a few. We've only had a couple of run-ins with the law, and we don't want to talk about that. Yeah, no face not, tattoos, nothing like that. No, no, <laughs> no, 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 none of the Hangover movies. No. Yeah, I, <sighs> well, Tillman, I'm I'm really glad you were able to join us today, or I guess I should say, Doctor Tillman Sheets, uh, to <laughs> to be formal. Um, Tillman, I think you sent us. Uh, my favorite bio that we've gotten from a guest so far, just because it is you in a nutshell due to its brevity. So here's, here's Tillman's bio. He's a professor of psychology and teaches in the IO doctoral program at Louisiana Tech. That's it. <laughs> That's it. Isn't that enough? Well, Till- Tillman, are, are you, you're a full professor, right? And are you an endowed scholar? Uh, you do you mind out, sharing what I, that is? I found out, I discovered that if you hang out long enough, the university feels obligated. <laughs> I'm sure it wasn't that simple, but I, I appreciate the humility. Uh, it's been a fun ride. I think it's probably a lot of places. If you can just stick it out long enough, you'll just wait everybody out. You'll have all the institutional knowledge and you'll become invaluable at some point. Exactly. Exactly. I know yeah. where all the skeletons are. Yeah. Know. Yeah. Did, my I goal five... is just, just die last, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I did five years as an administrator. So I know where all the skeletons are. Oh yeah, you do. I remember that. Yeah. Um, well, Tillman, thank you. Thank you so much for, for joining us today. I know we probably want to cover a lot of ground, um, but maybe maybe we can start out a little bit with just your history. And and I know a little of your history, but I'd love to hear it from you. Just, uh, you know, how did you meander in your career to get to where you are now as being, you know, a full professor, previous department chair at Louisiana Tech? I, I would start out with the fact that I, I, I would have judged me, and certainly everybody that knows me would have judged me as to be the last person on earth they would have ever expected to become an academic or a PhD. I, you know, I grew up as a military brat in a, in a working class family, and my father's initial reaction, I remember I was in the living room when I told him that I planned to go to college, and his, the first thing out of his mouth is, why would you do such a thing? 
<laughs> we'll we'll hold the phone on that because we'll actually come back to that in a little bit. So because I think we want to talk about that today. But uh, keep keep going with your history. I'd love to hear more. Yeah. Well, anyway, but I, I, I for lack of anything better to do, I waited tables and went to school and ended up. Uh, I don't know. One of my professors was got a job as at another university and asked me to apply to it. So I did. I got into a uh, uh, an assistantship with him. He was the faculty research advisor at the University of Southern Mississippi, and so I had I had to, I dove into SPSS, and you know those were the days when you had to code SPSS. There was no interface. Yeah. Windows Windows wasn't really a big thing by that point in time. I already had a lot of programming experience because I was I was one of those nerds with the with the old uh, Commodore sixty four. That's what, that was my first programming platform. That was first. I learned I learned basic on the 64, which was an amazing event. I still look back on that computer as being an engineering masterpiece. But you uh, still you still gravitate towards all this sort of stuff too. Oh, I mean, yeah, so. yeah. I, I still do a lot of programming. But the uh I ended up in the master's program in counseling psychology, was a counselor for a while, worked with both children with ADHD was kind of my specialty and then I went and worked with uh developmental disabilities I was I was actually the head of a fairly large unit in a dual diagnosis dual diagnosis unit which is the craziest place on earth you know I saw a movie the other day where they where were they, they were depicting that and I looked over at my wife we met there and I looked over at my <laughs> wife I said, the one thing they're missing is the smell and she said oh my god yes <laughs> <laughs> what the heck is a dual diagnosis unit? I'm sorry, I'm not it's familiar where, with this. It's where, uh, for our purposes, people had a developmental disability, severe developmental disability, along with a psychiatric diagnosis. Mm, Often, okay. we had a lot of schizophrenic in the unit I was in. I, we, we called it the back ward. It's where it's where the very the most troublesome people. Uh, you know, I tell I tell the story of one of one of my first experiences. I walked up to one of the the units where they lived and met some of the workers. And this this little old man, he walked up to me, and he 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 said, "Hey," and I said, "Hey, how are you?" And he said, "See that cat?" And there was a little kitten over there. And he said, "I'm gonna get that cat." And I looked at the workers, and they said, "We can't let him get near that cat." <laughs> wow. <laughs> The fl- the flavor of the experience grew from there. I'll just say that it was it was a wild ride. I actually enjoyed it though. I re- because in a situation like that, you get really close with people. Yeah. And, and my my psychology staff was incredible. They were an incredible group of people. So Very how do you good. how do you transition from uh, this sort of clinical psychology world to the I/O world? Then well, it you know it's a strange place and it's a small world. My friend uh, Victor was in the counseling psychology PhD program, and he's he kind of one day we were we were talking. He said, "You know, they're starting a, a PhD program in IO psychology here." And he said, "I think that would be perfect for you." And so I looked into it and went and talked to the guy that was ahead of the program, and I, everything fell in place. So I was in their first cohort, and uh, it just and I and I stuck with it. <laughs> <laughs> And, see, and, see, and here I'm thinking you're going to talk about opening up a catfish restaurant because I, because <laughs> <laughs> I, I well, didn't you do I that did, at one point too? Well, my, I thought barbecue, wife, right? Or barbecue. Or something. I did barbecue. Did a barbecue restaurant for a while. Yeah. yeah. Was, know, I've I've often thought that. Uh, it, it, correct me if I'm wrong, but a restaurant, like only like 10 percent of the success in a restaurant, is due to the food quality. Like fifty percent has to be all those location, IO location, things, location. yeah. Right. Selection, training, yeah. Making sure people have a good experience, and then the business aspect. I I, I learned I learned a tremendous amount uh, during that. Uh, as far as money, I it was it was a bust for the really? most part. I yeah. but I made a lot of money off of the real estate because. Well, yeah, that that was the, my saving grace is that that the real estate transaction. I, we only did it for two two years, I think, uh, but it ended up being being financially. I was okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, 
Uh, Anyways, so, so you, you finished your PhD and then uh, how do you wind up? Yeah. Looking for a job. And I went, uh, and it was quite a while. I, I wasn't in a big hurry. I got, the, I got my PhD and continued to work uh, with uh, kids, ADHD, kids. Yeah. And uh, then I decided, you know, I really got to break out of this. I've got to go try to find a job in I.O. And, you know, I had good friends that were being very successful in I.O. at that time. And things were starting to take off within, within the context of recognition of I.O. That was kind of a turning point where people started to recognize I.O. had value in organizations. And uh, so I went to SIOP in San Diego and uh, started doing interviews with people. I, and I had one of my best experiences and one of my worst experiences there. Uh, Doug Reynolds, I, I interviewed with Doug Reynolds for DDI. And that was, you know, uh, it was a nightmare. <laughs> I, I, did everything, I did everything you could possibly do wrong. And I just... I don't, and I don't blame Doug. Doug was very gracious. He's a very nice guy. Yeah, I was like, tell me, we don't typically name people on this podcast, but <laughs> you're just dropping people like real people's names who might listen. He's oh. an incredible human being, in my opinion, but I know he thought I was crazy. <laughs> I wouldn't have hired me either, is what I'm saying. But then it's a learning experience at this point. Yeah, yeah. But then luckily the tables turned and I ran into Dan Stackow and had this incredible conversation with Dan and he he had brought uh, another social psychologist, Seiji Takaku, there, and and so I got to know Dan and Seiji in a very long interview. We probably talked for an hour and a half, and at the end of the interview, Dan looked at me and he said, "I'm I'm going to hire you if you want to come." And I said, <laughs> I, "I'll pack my bags." When tell me where did he want you to come to? In Cato, to his master's program, and it was like going to school all over again, and. He, you know, I, I think the world of Dan also, he is an incredible teacher and human being. And he, he taught me more than I learned in graduate school. And, and then I ended up having a similar conversation a couple of years later with Tony Young at Tech because I wanted to come back home, closer to home and uh, ended up leaving Mankato and coming back to Louisiana. And when I got here at Louisiana Tech, um, the faculty were working on a proposal for a PhD program, and within like two years, they all left. You know, for other <laughs> I was set. I was left standing holding the proposal, and the university asked me to finish it. Once and again, I, like eighty percent of success is just showing up. Like you're there, and I was. You know, who's they going to give it to? It was well, a long, laborious process, but but we got it done. When Scott and I are forever grateful because uh, oh, yeah. that kind of kind of leads to where we are now. We wanted to sort of tell the origin story of of Scott and I. And uh, for for those of you listening, Tillman was both of our advisors in graduate school, so he knew us when we were well. We're still dumb, but he knew us when we were a lot dumber. <laughs> and uh, we we're hoping to kind of joke around about some of that stuff today if you don't mind Tillman I know Scott has some interesting questions for you <laughs> we you, okay you, you've known us each for uh you know 10 plus years at this point uh so just kind of rapid fire first impression of uh Cole and I and what we might do okay so who is the better dresser Cole Cole yeah, <laughs> who has better taste in music oh you know, I don't really know. I'm going to guess you, but because I, I don't really know either of you in terms of music. Uh, who's the bigger perfectionist? I say that's very sad that I don't know your music taste. I think music's super important. But... <laughs> Next question. Who's the, who, who's the bigger perfectionist? Cole. Yeah, clearly. Who's well, the I don't know. You, you, are, you are too, though. You hide yours well. <laughs> yeah in different ways i feel like i think in some ways because i'm very loosey-goosey on some things but also kind of anal about some things and scott's like the opposite of me in a lot of ways yeah, yeah. people don't really I, I put off a uh air that uh i don't give a shit but behind the scenes i really really do right, right. uh who is the nerdiest Cold by far really <laughs> i didn't oh, yeah. expect that you didn't We're... thought you no. were nerdy 
Well, eventually. But once again, you are very nerdy, but you you hide it well. <laughs> uh, most likely to end up in jail. Oh, you. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Uh, most creative. And maybe that's because Cole comes from a family of law lawyers. Okay, that's yeah, fair. I'll get out. <laughs> yeah. Um, what was the other question? Most creative. Oh, most creative? Well, you. Yeah, Scott by a mile. Primar primarily because of your, your photography is incredible. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, thank you. Uh, most likely to own a pet snake. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. I actually too. wanted to own a pet snake. Like, I wouldn't own a, like, a pet snake <laughs> farm when I was a kid. I thought that was the coolest thing. <laughs> a snake farm, indeed. Yeah. Well, not like, not like a farm, but like, um, like I had this friend growing up. This, this is so off topic for the podcast. But uh, I had this friend growing up whose dad uh, sold, God, I don't know why I'm mentioning this. He sold illegal venomous snakes out of like their garage. And this when I was at, so Louisiana, was yeah, it, was it mostly a religious? <laughs> I, I was too young to know. This was when I was probably six or seven years old. And I thought that was the coolest thing ever. And I also wanted to sell illegal venomous snakes. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I, I kind of grew out of that, let's say. It's a career path. Yeah, it's there's something for everybody, I guess you could say. <laughs> Uh, okay, okay, I'm, I'm, a couple more. I'm gonna interrupt the que the question answer because I'm gonna tell you guys my my first impressions of you. Oh, is, okay. I this, vividly, yeah. I vividly remember uh, Cole, especially Scotty, a little bit less, but I but I still remember my impression of Scotty. At least I re I have a memory of an early conversation we had. But for Cole, it was he was an undergraduate at Louisiana Tech, and I was in a meeting with uh where i think you were you were kind of acting as the defense for a student that had gotten in trouble and i remember dickie crawford uh, said another name yeah there you go just dropping names <laughs> left and right well, at least i'm speaking highly of the people because he's, he's another person i think very highly of uh but i remember you were at the table and i was so impressed by your demeanor you're you were like calm mr calm cool and collected and I was like, this guy's whatever he's got, I think it'll work. And I started, I heavily recruited you. You know, that yeah. was you were in our first cohort. Yeah. And I, I remember I, that. I basically talked you into it. And and you you I think it took you about two years before you decided decided it was okay. Yeah, and I've regretted it ever since. <laughs> no, it was great. And I I've really I'm really grateful for you talking to me into it, Tillman. I, I probably wouldn't have done it otherwise. So so I, I really appreciate that. Yeah. And Scott came came to us. I remember my first conversation with with him was, "I'm not sure who's going to teach whom." <laughs> so he, came, he came from a from as a seasoned professional. You know, he'd already been in the business and kind of knew what he was doing. And and I, I just remember thinking, "I don't know how much we can teach him, but we'll try." It was a uh, sheer overconfidence. It's a Dunning Kruger <laughs> effect, definitely. You know, I, I realize now how little i know in a lot of areas uh, well I, that, that's sort of that socratic thing the more the more you learn about an area the more you learn not nah, never going to know it not yeah. not to get like sentimental but like when i was writing my dissertation i would go to tillman's it's like an adjacent office it's like a big room and yeah, had a big table in there and had a big whiteboard and <laughs> we would sit I, I would go in maybe like nine o'clock ten o'clock in the morning and like someone i would talk for like an hour hour and a half do work for about 20 minutes and go to lunch for like an hour and a half That's talk like, there right? sounds just like yesterday it was, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that, it was just a fantastic time that day is still happening scott you're just not a part of that day anymore <laughs> i got pushed out to the real world you know i think one of the most exciting things about my particular job it, it, you know having the graduate program and having the opportunity to have really incredible conversations every single day and i had one yesterday and i was just i just walked into the student's office and right and he's close to mine and i left an hour later and it was my yeah. lunch it was lunchtime and uh 
but still I told him, I'm like, that, that was kind of crazy. And he said, he said, yeah, wasn't that great. <laughs> it, it must be also really, uh, affirming and rewarding to say, like go to PSYOP and not only see the current students that are at law tech, but the, I don't know, 10 cohorts or so that have come before them all mm-hmm. getting together, being successful, you know, moving on with their life, doing whatever they're doing. It, it, and it, you, you were part of all this. You, you enabled it. Well, I don't, I don't know how much I, I, I kind of feel like I, I'm just in the, in the boat along with along for the ride, but uh, it's, it has been incredibly fun. And yes, it has, it makes PSYOP a really cool place. You know, knowing, knowing all those faces from the past that come up and we have conversations. Well, and, and, and Tillman, I mean, I, I don't want to rake us over the coals too much here, but you know, some, some, uh, you know, shows will do like a, where are they now? We thought it'd be fun if you talk a little bit about where were they then? Meaning like, what was it like being an advisor to both me and Scott back in the day? And, uh, you know, I mean, try not to go too hard on us. Cause you know, we have feelings and all, but, uh, you know, what was it like? Oh my God. I don't, you know, I, you you have vivid memories because I, the the fact that there, that you were in the first cohort meant we spent way more time together than maybe any other cohort, uh, and especially students. So I may have spent more time with you than any other student so far. Well, we we both had skin in the game because, like, yeah. you know, right. this there was a possibility it wasn't going to work out, you know, yeah. with the program, and so. Absolutely. We had to kind of co-create it together. I, you know, I tell people that's part of the reason why why I I decided to take the job as department head when they when they asked me to was because I saw I could get through some red tape, but I was still battling a lot of red tape at that time. But more than anything, I remember Cole kind of teaching you, uh, I'm going to call it political correctness. <laughs> I still haven't learned, but yeah, right. You're 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 a very authentic person, and I kind of had to teach you is don't always be authentic. <laughs> situations where you just you shut it. Come down. on, man. Yeah, let it go. <laughs> that's uh, that's me in a nutshell. Yeah, yeah, you got me. All right. Well, what? Scott, a, yeah. What about Scott? my memories are kind of exactly what he said because we used to do that quite often when he was working especially when that year he was working on his dissertation we we had the board we had a, it was like a double ch- uh what is what are those things called uh boards it's glass the, the, the whiteboard but they're huge it's they, fancy sort it's of almost, whiteboard it's a, it's at least 15 feet of board space oh across. yeah there's like two huge chalkboard sizes but it was glass boards and we, we had a marker and we put everything up on there. And it was, it was the coolest thing ever to have conversations and try to figure out the puzzles. And I have, I, a, I have the vivid uh, memory of, of Nita. Yeah. Solving, solving a problem for us. And we were like, it's dancing <laughs> at the board and she figured it all out. And I was like, that blew my mind. We, we we came up with a uh, a puzzle. We're like, this is unsolvable. And like, she walked in, and within twelve seconds, she's like, oh, you just like flip this around, and you guys are screwed. Pattern <laughs> just pattern. blew it right up. A pattern there, and she then she demonstrated <laughs> that indeed there was. That's, that's uh, so wild. And Tillman dropping other people's names. You know, let's just keep doing it. Let's just name everybody. Well, everybody uh, likes their name dropped, right? <laughs> Well, yeah. Who, who's your favorite grad student right now? Oh God, please don't answer that. <laughs> I kid, but uh, you know, one thing I love uh, when I talk to Tillman, he's always got great book recommendations. Anything out there that we should read, oh, or we no. or answer to that? I am, I am so hung up on Ian or Ian. I think is how you say his name. Ian McGilchrist. Uh, yeah, that 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 guy. I, Ian McGilchrist. I'm not familiar with this. Oh, you need to be. Every as far as I'm concerned, it's a, it it's a must read for psychologists. It's incredible, but it's most it's mostly his talk about right right brain left brain, but it's very enlightening. Uh, I think. It, as, when Tillman, you're talking about the master and his emissary, correct? Yeah, primarily he. Uh, that's an older book. I think it came out in 2010. He has a more recent 
I, it's almost like a, a new version of it that it's a two volume set. And really? I think, yeah, What's... I think it was the, the master and his emissary was so popular that he decided to kind of take on his critics and he just kind of blew it up. What, what's what's the general premise of this left brain right brain? That we that Western civilization is is oh. primarily following, and it's an oversimplification, and and he is not one to oversimplify anything. I, I, one reviewer I was reading <laughs> about, one academic reviewer, talked about his tech. He said the guy said I've read a lot of textbooks and a and a lot of scholarly articles. He said, but this, but the, but the writing in Master and Emissary is like a neutron, as dense as a neutron star. <laughs> it, 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 it takes effort. Every sentence you have to, you kind of have to mull over every sentence and get, oh, that's what he said. Like not, it, not a bathroom book, I take it. No, no. I, I did it as an <laughs> audio book and it's hard <laughs> as an audio book. Yeah. So, yeah. I suggest people just skip to chapter 12 if you don't want to listen to it. It's the last chapter in the book. And he summarizes everything eloquently. It's still dense as a neutron star, but it it kind of takes everything in the book in chapter 12 is summarized and concludes and you'll understand the basic gist of it. Well, tell me, uh, tell me if this is the gist, <clears throat> Tillman, because this is my recollection. Because um, I remember you recommending this all the way but when I was back in school. Because there's like the individual component and there's the societal component that you mentioned earlier about like Western civilization. But the individual component is, you know, the brain is put into two hemispheres and I can't remember which one is which, but one of the hemispheres governs kind of our intuitions and our feelings and the other hemisphere kind of like our logic and reasoning. And yeah. we what, what, what people think is that our logic and reasoning govern how we like rationalize what we do. But what the book talks about is that it's actually our intuitions and our feelings and kind of like uh, those things. And then we use our, our reason to rationalize what our feelings tell us. And that's uh, the technical term for that is motivated reasoning. Am I, am I rem remembering that correctly? Yeah. I mean, he goes into that. It, it, yeah. Like I said, like I said, dense is a neutron star. Uh, yeah. He, and, and part of the reason that I think, uh, those folks in biology dislike us talking about the left and right hemispheres is that we oversimplify it. You know, the reality, <laughs> the reality is there's the, the brain is so integrated, both right and left. Yeah. So integrated and they depend upon each other to such a high degree that you, it's hard to parse out uh, influence in a normal human being. I mean, you can look at split brain patients and see some striking differences, but it doesn't help us truly appreciate or understand how the brain integrates uh, the, the right and left. That said, um, the, the oversimplified message is we're living in a left brain world that, that expect that parses everything out. The left, the left brain like, likes to dissect things, categorize things, and predict things and it understands time and the only emotion that sounds like people analytics <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah it is yeah the, the only the only thing that uh the only emotion i believe that's strongly associated with the left brain would be anger um the other emotions tend tend to be more right brain activation um, I, I wonder if that's largely because that i don't really know but right we're just speculating but i wonder if this is a largely based off of like the evolution of society into a more like technological world like 500 yeah. years ago you had no choice you were a farmer and if you wanted to well, it all started with the industrial revolution primarily but oh, yeah, there you go yeah yeah and my, my take on it is i think it i think it started when we walked out of the woods and planted wheat in the field and decided we needed to do this regularly so we would have beer <laughs> I really think beer's clean clean drinking water quite literally yeah 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 that's an interesting spin on yuval noah harari's sapiens <laughs> book it's all about exactly. beer yeah exactly uh you want to step into the nerdery with us and talk about some uh recent articles 
<laughs> sure. I don't know. We're, we're, we're working on the transition here. It's not exactly we're, going. We're, smoothly. we're calling our new segments the nerdery section. So you're, you're now a part of the nerdery. Okay. All right. Let's go. Uh, uh, the odds are I'll probably bring McGilchrist into whatever you say. So go ahead. Okay. Well, uh, I, I can't wait for uh, McGilchrist to be sprinkled into this. You're going to love this, Tony. So have you heard of uh, Grow with Google? Essentially, uh, Google is breaking the academic model. They're allowing people to get professional certifications in five different areas, uh, digital marketing, IT support, data analytics, and project, man project management, and uh, UX design. So people, for, for totally free, they can take these courses, get certified, and go get a you know, $60,000, $100,000 job totally for free. Don't have to go to college. They've essentially distilled what is needed in the world and they're providing it yeah, we're, we're giving them we're giving them a lot of advertisement right here yes and i noticed i noticed that they they advertise the, the median salary for people with those certificates is like sixty six thousand dollars. i wonder if i wonder how they track that or, or, or <laughs> that number but well it's not like companies like google don't track everyone already anyway so you know yeah, fair. that's true exactly they're listening to me now is that what you're saying well, I think the kind of the, the spin on this, Tillman, I'd love you to comment on it, kind of going all the way back to the conversation you had with your dad is, you know, what's the value of a college degree now when, first of all, you know, skyrocketing costs and, you know, student loans and all of that kind of like the political components, but then also in the age of programs like Grow with Google. I don't know. Do you care to comment on that? Well, I, I kind of have seen this coming and I've talked about it. I, you know, I have. Uh, grandchildren who are yeah. you know, at that age have a, he's a my oldest grandchild's a high school senior and i've i've explained it to him i'm like you know don't think that you have to go to college because here's here's a path that people are making really good money with these certifications and if you have the expertise etc so i think i think the colleges are maybe in maybe in trouble and i think it i see it coming now, on the other end of that, is there still a need for a college education and or a PhD for that matter? Because I think the the same thing occurs at the graduate level is, do I really need that? Students always ask me, do I need a PhD? And I'm like, it depends yeah. on what you want to do and what, what your ambition is. And I think that, you know, undergraduate degree, you get a smattering of liberal arts and we'll lose that. They'll lose, they'll lose the exposure to literature, to, uh, I don't know, all of history, to all those other topics that, that are required for a college degree. And it, are those things important to people? I, 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 to me, it is. The answer is yes, it should yeah. be. But not everybody. Not, everybody, not everybody's going to rely on that or even wants that liberal, liberal arts education. And the you're, saying, you're saying your local barista doesn't need to be well-versed in Shakespeare? Is that what you're saying? But by God, it's better if... <laughs> if they had, you know? Let me just say this, but <laughs> shall I compare thee to a summer's day? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, there's no compression algorithm for experience. And what like a PhD program does, it provides you, kind of like you were talking to a student earlier today, it provides you the time to really get into a subject matter and dig through it, think about it, explore possibilities. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I don't, I don't think uh, a certificate in, in like, if, let's, let's go with people analytics. Yeah. I, don't think, I don't think a certificate, a certificate in people analytics is going to give you the deep thinking insight that you can get from from a PhD program, a good PhD program. No, and uh, a lot of those sort of technical skills are also look out because the AI is coming and it's going to automate yeah. these sort of things. Absolutely, I was talking to a student the other day about I, I don't know what the window of opportunity is for programming, you know, because there there are many projects out there on the net right oh, yeah. now where, where they're building programming apps that you just talk to and, and it builds the programming for you, the code for you. Yeah. I mean, there used Codes, to be like just object, just object oriented programming. And now it's like no code, low code sort of right. anyone can get involved. Yep. 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 And I think that that's certainly going to continue. 
And then once once AI really really rolls into it, look out decisions to make. Look out. Well, this is this is in- interesting because one of our <clears throat> previous guests, uh, Dr. Max Bloomberg. <clears throat> I love that. I love that podcast. I love Max now. That was my introduction. <laughs> to Max. Well, I want Max. I want Max to be my friend. Oh my God, I love that podcast. Well, don't inflate his ego too much, please. But uh, we we can make that happen. Um, he and I actually recorded another podcast yesterday for oh, People cool. Analytics World, which is a, a big uh, conference and, and and consortium in in Europe. And we talked about a lot of this stuff that you guys are just talking about yesterday. And so I'm like, wow, this is like really relevant. And the the conclusion that Max and I came to was that you know what's the in, in people analytics in particular you know, with like all the disruption about like low code tools and AI and automation and all of that, what, what are going to be the things that humans still do or the, the value that they still bring? And the conclusion we came to was really that problem solving, critical and analytical thinking, and really inductive reasoning. And those are all of the things kind of to tie it to back to the conversation that we're having that really don't come from like a people analytics certification. They come from that kind of liberal arts education where it teaches you how to think not just what to do. Yeah, I think I think that's certainly on point. That that's exactly the reason why I say organizations need IO psychologists in in their in their uh, data analytics. You know, I've just and you guys can probably back me up on this. I know a lot of incredible code coders. You know, mm-hmm. people that can can rip through coding and 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 spit out results but they don't understand the meaning. And I think what's needed is somebody who can uh, wrap their head around it and see the whole picture and, you know, speaking of right brain, you need some right brain along with that, the left brain results. I mean, I think this is the difference between IOs and economists in a lot of respect. Economists will try to optimize on some sort of external value, whereas IO brings the theory. So like take something like selection, we can build a really solid selection instrument if you're an uh, economist, but it's going to be almost entirely cognitive ability laden and you're going to have all sorts of adverse impact issues, et cetera. But IOs can bring in other. And and it goes beyond that of, you know, I think we have, we still have a, we have criterion problems like crazy. Oh yeah. And those, and I think those criterion problems are going to, are going to roll in or are already rolling into machine learning, especially in AI is that we're we're constantly looking at the bottom line and not paying attention to other really important features, you know, and it has to, once again, I'm going to get back to that left brain tendency to, to what we, what we want or things that are observable. And to top that off is look at the role of conscientiousness in our selection instruments and where, what part of the brain does conscientiousness reside? <laughs> anyway, enough said. Yeah. Well, I think that's the perfect transition Tillman. Uh, we, we, I, I'm sure you had already come across it, but uh, we sent over this article that was recently published about the usage of natural language processing in job analysis, because as, as I was psychologist, we know that, you know, job analysis is kind of the, the bread and butter, or maybe even the foundation of really the whole discipline. And I'm wondering, you know, it was kind of where new school meets old school. So you're taking, you know, all this kind of automation, these uh, machine learning algorithms, and then applying it to, you know, ONET data, KSAOs, task lists, and that type of thing. I don't know, what was your reaction um, to that article? Because I believe there were some pretty IO heavy hitters that were the the authors of it. There, there, it had my IO heroes in there, you know, <laughs> Fred, Fred Oswald, I'll, I'll mention him because good God almighty, he is a, he is a superhero. He's a powerhouse, uh, along with Richard Landers and the, and the rest of the crew. But, uh, and I, and I really appreciate what they did. I think they, they broke some new ground, I, but I still think, have you ever, have, have either of you had any experience with NLP? I took it for a test drive. Yeah, that's that's my experience too. I've done it a little bit more than a test drive, but uh, boy, there's people out there that are doing some wild, wild stuff, especially in the tech industry. 
Yeah, and I, I don't, I can't say that I truly understand it very well, but there are sure are a lot of decisions you have to make in terms. Oh of, yeah. You know what? What's the best? What's the best model to use? And and once you once you decide on the model, you have all these other decisions that you have to make. So I think there's going to be a lot of variability uh, around that. People trying to di- dial in the best model. A lot of overfitting is going to happen. Even at a basic level, just the stop words that you use and the words you actually include in the analysis. Yes, exactly. So I can't say I can't speak to it directly, but however, the criterion problem is not going to go away. And I think our what are you pointing that machine learning at? You know, what's the target? And for for a lot of organizations, it's the bottom line. You know, we want we want more. We want higher productivity that results in a in a better bottom line. And I don't know that we can identify all the variables that are associated with really with our, the criteria of a really great organization. No, um, no. Uh, I, and I, I think this is this is also like the holy grail, some way to automate yeah. job analysis, because every organization has a million job codes. And of course, we have <laughs> ONET to try and yeah, match it up to, but <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> But there's all sorts of issues involved here that, that you're bringing up. It's like it's like the, well, I and I don't what what they were demonstrating. I don't think is, I think it's I think it's an improvement probably over our our current approaches. But I'm just saying it doesn't do away with a very basic problem that we've always had and continue to have. And I don't know that it may may not it may exacerbate problems because of that criterion problem. Absolutely. Like I've used it uh, quite a bit to uh, decode qualitative data, take a list of uh, people's responses to say focus groups and try to run it through some topic modeling and it'll spit out a generic topic, but it's uh, unfortunately it it is not as robust or as insightful that I found thus far as hand coding it, understanding what people are actually saying Exactly. And you know, doing kind of like an old school approach. Yeah, yeah. I call it soak, uh, soaking in the data. You know. Yeah. Where where you really, you, you know, I, I always I always compare it to uh, the Matrix, where where the numbers are scrolling on the screen. I said you, <laughs> you step in the data long enough, and you actually do see the lady in the red dress. <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, you know, I, I was in uh, D.C. last week. So kind of switching gears. Uh, um, and I, I heard about this is kind of people analytics related. A owner of a Domino's pizza was able to speaking of prediction in people analytics, he was able to predict military invasion based on the number of pizzas that were being ordered overnight to the White House and the Department of Defense. And so, like, he always saw a <laughs> super big spike in these pizzas being delivered because presumably uh, all these people are working overnight and they need something to eat. Uh, And Prediction is the name of the game across people analytics and like looking for these proxy measures, whether it be NLP or, uh, you know, anything else we have is kind of the gold standard. Yeah. Yeah. I'd actually heard kind of a similar thing. It's not the same, but, uh, you know, it, until Russia's war with Ukraine, there was never any two countries in history that had a McDonald's that had gone to war with one another. <clears throat> and so it was actually the first time that's ever been violated in history, which I thought was very interesting. Uh, and the McDonald's immediately shut down all the Russian stores. <laughs> that's what they did. Right. Yeah. So I guess it's still true in a way. Are, uh, are you guys familiar with uh, Matthew Jackson? He's a uh, professor out of Stanford. He- not familiar. He has a book called The Human Network, uh, Network Analysis sort of guy. He gets super deep. He has a really good uh, course on Coursera, totally free if you want to get involved. And he goes way deep, like I said. But one of the, uh, one of the things that he found was that uh, countries that have trading alliances, their odds of going to war diminish almost to zero uh, yeah. from pre-post. So the actual solution to a lot of the world's uh, armed conflicts is increasing trading relationships because that gives a uh, incentive for them to get along because it's mutually beneficial. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Maybe 
maybe McDonald's is this glue. <laughs> I feel like yeah. us as like IOs and people analytics people, we're coming to conclusions that like the international relations community have known for like forever, but we had to like get there <laughs> with it with an ONA to figure it out, you know. So <clears throat> local validation, man. Well, <laughs> speaking of you know uh, topics that uh, you know may. I, I want to kind of, I want to rile you up a little bit, Tillman. Um, no. no, in a good way. Uh, I want to, I want to get your, your edgy thoughts on the, the role of significance testing mm. in, in, uh, you know, just science in general, but IO or, or people analytics specifically, you want to talk about P is less than 0.05. Yeah. I give, I'll give another book a plug. Um, the lady tasting tea by, uh, Salzburg. Uh, he goes into the history of statistics and especially he starts off with Ronald Fisher and then moves on from there. But, you know, I think the whole idea of statistical significance testing has turned into kind of a cookbook methodology where you have a huge number of people that don't understand the statistics, but they can run the statistic and look at the p-value and use that alone, yeah. and they, but they don't really understand what's going on behind the scenes. They don't understand confidence intervals or normal distributions or, uh, you know, what, what is required, you know, to, to, before you do a t-test even. Uh, and, and most of the time the answer is no, you shouldn't be doing a t-test in IO psychology. There's, we don't have, most of the data we have, it's not appropriate. Or a lot of the data we have, it's not. Oh, yeah. We, we, we treat like uh, interval scales as if they're continuous, all this sort of stuff. And yeah. you, you, you recommend know. you recommend this book to me. I think that you essentially stated that uh, a, a 0.05 is just a marker to go look further. It's yeah, not it's a, it's for in exploratory. the NLBL. So, it, you know, what we're, what we're doing in, in data analysis, you know, the holy grail of data analysis is a very clear signal with low noise, right? So you want you want to see a signal and you want it to be very clear. Not rarely that never happens in in the real world. It's a, it's actually you're lucky to see a signal. And depending upon the measurements you use, your sample size, all those things related to power, um, you you may or may not see a signal. But what Fisher was saying is if if it's if it has a point at least a point oh five significance, that should get your attention. Yeah. You know? But then go back and build a methodology where the signal is clearer, where you can make a, a more concise decision as to whether or not that signal is, is real and that it's not just due to fluctuations in noise. I, I think that one of the funniest series of texts I ever received from anyone was from you, Tillman, where we were going out to Sundown Tavern, a little bar in Ruston, and it's like, Tillman, come on out, come on out. And uh, it was like five o'clock, and I got a P less than point one. Like, and then like two hours later, it's P less than point oh five. And then it was like P less than point oh. I think I was saying great. I think I was saying greater than, but great, greater than. Eventually, eventually it became. <laughs> There's no chance. There's no chance that you're coming out. And I thought it was just absolutely freaking genius. <laughs> <laughs> that joke, is pretty clever yeah the joke statisticians tell when I, I think about this you know my my take on the the significance testing and we talked about this a little bit when uh dr chris castile was on the podcast one of our old old friends is just its relationship to things like p hacking you know because really what p uh, is less than 0.05 means is there's a one in 20 chance that this is due to chance well, guess what? If you test, you know, 50 or 100 hypotheses, that by definition means that a few of those findings are going to be due to chance just because they oh, violate sure. that one in 20 rule. And so, you know, if, and I think that's where the whole term p-hacking comes from. Right. I, I do want to put it in a plug for Dr. Castile. He is doing some incredible work. I, I really do appreciate what he's doing in terms of uh, you know, forwarding the cause of open science, because I think it's, it's a game changer. And I keep saying, I'm hoping that there's a revolution where this not, it doesn't become, you know, this, this small thing, but that everybody adopts this idea 
of open science, especially journals, you know, that they, they don't accept research that doesn't follow kind of the protocol that he outlined. But anyway, yeah. Well, I actually want to amplify the message too. I mean, Chris uh, reached out after the podcast and actually said, this thing is happening. Um, I don't know if he wants us to share it on here or not, but I, I don't kind of, I kind of don't care because <laughs> it's such a good thing. But they're, they're really starting the open science initiative just for, I can't remember the name of it, but they've, they've already begun the open science initiative for IO psychology and, and they're getting co uh, collaborators from all across the world. And so, you know, I want to amplify his message out there as much as I can. So great. Yeah. He's doing some really good work. We all need to follow that process. So um, this has just been, I mean, I, I can't say it. We, we try not to get too sentimental here. Uh, it's too cheesy, but this has been great just having you here and kind of, you know, rehashing some old times. And I think it'll be good for our audience to, to know you, but also to kind of humanize us a little bit. Um, so thank you so much for joining us today. Um, I do want to give you the last word, but before, before we do that, uh, Scott, any final things you want to share? Oh, Tillman, uh, it's great seeing you. Love talking to you. Miss our conversation. It's been yeah. fantastic. It, it is. I, I love what you guys are doing. And I know I've told each of you independently, but while I have you together, kudos. I, I hope you, I hope you keep this up. You're doing it. You're, I, I can't believe you have the time to do what you do. Uh, but I certainly appreciate yeah. it. The only, the only <laughs> thing, the only thing I would like is a way, a way to talk back to the podcast when I'm listening to it. I do, but I have, no one hears me. <laughs> we'll work on the inventing that technology. Uh, yeah. Uh, let's see. Now, I guess that's a, I guess that's about it. But uh, I do have I do have a joke. All right. Okay. I like. I'm this. intrigued. Yes. Uh, and a data set walks into a bar, sees a moderator sitting on the stool, and asks, "How goes it?" And the moderator says, "It depends." Of course, nice. of course. <laughs> That's a classic Tillman humor. Thank you so much. Only a statistician would appreciate that joke. Yeah, you, you and Max would get along. <laughs> oh my gosh! All right, well, I'm going to share my note, my notes that I wrote with you guys. That's at the very end of my notes, but I want to share with them ahead of time because you'd know how crazy I am. <laughs> we love the crazy man, and thank, thank you so much for joining us today, Tillman. And um, this Thanks has been, yeah, yeah. This has been Directionally Correct, a People Analytics podcast with Colin Scott and Tillman Sheets.